Please turn with, with me to Second Peter, chapter two. Second Peter two, we will look at verses one through three dealing with the false prophets. As we come to read God's word, let me open us in a word of prayer. Gracious God, as we will come to see in your word now, false teachers are at work in your church, coming from within it and from without And were it not for your grace, we would be easily deceived. Were it not for your preserving, persevering power in us, your spirit indwelling us, we would believe the lies of Satan, not the truth of your word. What we have, we have by grace and grace alone. May we always know this and may we dig down further and deeper into your word and have our roots firmly planted in it so that we may withstand every wind of doctrine that comes our way. Lord, would you use this passage and this time for the edification of your people and the conviction of sinners to turn from sin and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me as we read Second Peter chapter 2, 1-3. through 3. This is the word of God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words." Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Peter is dealing with a problem in the churches he is writing to in this epistle, the problem of the rise of false teachers coming not from the outside, but from within the covenant community, coming from within the church. They are already on the rise, and Peter promises that there are more to come later. These false teachers most characteristically proclaim that there is no second coming of the Lord Jesus. Would there have been a judgment at the end of history, it would have happened in Christ's first coming, so they say. So since Christ has not returned, has not brought in the consummation of the kingdom, judging his enemies, since he has not done that yet, he's not going to do it at all. Therefore, you're not going to give an account for the deeds you do in the flesh, so you can do whatever you please. This was part of the message the false teachers were preaching to those Peter is trying to protect. And this is characteristic of the church in this present evil age, prior to the consummation. It is a mixed community by God's design. Both the wheat and the tares, the good fish and the bad fish, the sheep and the goats grow up together. And it's only Christ when he returns at the end of the age, only then will he separate the two. 
there will be separation and purification of his covenant community only at the end of the age. In the meantime, we deal with that mixed nature of the covenant. In the context of this passage, we saw last time in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, about the teaching of God's word, what it is. It is not the private interpretation of any prophet or apostle. It is the God-breathed scripture. Peter's exhortation there is to know the truth, know the word of truth, and thereby you will be you will be protected from believing any false teaching that comes your way. Here in this passage, Peter gives us the characteristics of the counterfeiting of God's truth. His aim is to equip God's people to recognize the false teachers, and he wants to encourage God's people of the demise of the false teachers. So first of all, to that end, Peter tells us about the antiquity of the false teachers. In verse 1, False prophets also arose among the people, that is God's old covenant people, just as there will be false teachers among you. There have been those who have taught falsehood ever since Satan deceived Adam and Eve. The, the pedigree of false teaching has, has a long history. God speaks and there is a counterfeit. In the old covenant, there were false prophets predicting wrong things about what is to come. And in the New Covenant counterpart, there are false teachers teaching false things about the coming of Christ. So Peter's point here is that the church is not to be discouraged. This is not something new that they're experiencing. This is something that's been going on for millennia, ever since Satan deceived Adam and Eve. This has been happening for a long time. In spite of the presence of false prophets and false teachers, God has preserved his remnant. He will preserve those who hold fast to his truth now. And so the exhortation from Peter here is to follow the example of your forefathers in the faith. Follow their positive and negative examples. Purge out what is evil and hold on to what is good. Negatively, remember those who were duped. Remember those who were deceived. Learn from their mistake and act accordingly. Commenting on this, Richard Gaffin says, For those who are in the wilderness, everything depends on perseverance. In other words, don't let your guard down. Be on the lookout for false teachers. Be on the lookout because they are subtle and crafty. Everything depends on perseverance. What Peter is saying here literally translates to false prophets also appeared in the people. False teachers appeared in you will appear in you. This is not a statement about the world. It's not a statement about what is outside the church, in the culture. This is coming from within, coming from within the church. And we already know this from Jesus' teaching. He says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved. I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. This false teaching is coming from within the covenant. We know this also from Paul's teaching. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, He speaks of the man who sleeps with his father's wife, the man who has his stepmother. He says such immorality does not even happen in the pagan society. This kind of wickedness is not even going on in the world, but it's in the church. Therefore, purge out this leaven so that the whole lump is not infected. So what is a false prophet or a false teacher? It's not a reference to someone who holds the office of prophet or teacher wrongly not a reference to their office, but a reference to their content. Someone who prophesies or teaches 
false things and calls it true, calls it by its opposite. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 13, first five verses, where God raises up false prophets among his people, it was his doing, to test God's people to know whether they love him wholly. Are, they, are God's people going to give in or are they going to stand firm? That is God's use of false prophets among his people to sanctify his people. Later in Deuteronomy 18, we see some marks of the false prophets. What are some of their characteristics? How can we recognize them? Well, they are those who presume to speak a word in God's name that God has not in fact given to them. So they're speaking on their own authority and calling it by God's authority. They speak in the name of other gods, of false gods. They speak in the name of the Lord something that does not actually happen saying something like, by God's name, this will happen at such and such a time, and then it doesn't take place. That's a mark of a false teacher right there. They prophesy for personal gain. They're in it only for the money, and they can get a good amount of money in deceiving God's people. They distort the truth. They live immoral lives. They tell people only what they want to hear, not the hard truth, not the hard truth of sin and repentance. Their predictions do not come true, and they encourage God's people to serve other gods. Maybe not exclusively, but add these gods to the list. These false prophets in the Old Covenant, false teachers in the New, these people have no message from God. They have nothing from God to say to God's people. They're making things up. And they're, they're promoting a message that is false so as to get monetary gain out of God's people. We see this in the New Testament as well. Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Christ speaks of how many will be led astray by false teachers, by false Christs. They'll perform great signs and wonders, and they'll even lead the elect astray if that were possible. That is how crafty they are. Even God's elect people could be led astray if that were possible. Christ also says in Luke chapter 6, that if all people speak well of you, if you only have a good reputation, you are cursed. Woe to you if that is the case, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If you only tell people what they want to hear, you have no portion and no fellowship with the Lord. The Apostle John in his first epistle tells us to test the spirits. Be at work to test them to see if they are from God. In the test of false prophets, he goes on to list later in that epistle. And the primary way of testing if someone is a false teacher is what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. They were diligent in searching the scriptures daily to see if what the apostles were saying was actually true. The scriptures will, will bear out the evidence as to whether a teacher is false or is true. You think about the way that those who are on the lookout for counterfeit money come to develop that skill? Do they lay out many kinds of counterfeit money, many examples of counterfeits that they've collected over the years? That could have some use. But they spend the majority of their time studying the original. If you know the original government currency, you will be able to recognize all manifestations of counterfeit. We spoke about this this morning in the apologetics class. The better you know the truth the better you'll be able to withstand error. Don't waste your time looking at all the counterfeits, looking at all the ways false teaching manifests. 
Get the framework down. Dig your roots deep into Scripture. Know the true. Know the original. And you'll be able to recognize all the counterfeits. Think of another example. Just a basic question. How is it that we grow? Is it by pointing out what is wrong with bad meals? Identifying the the, the bad elements of a, of a bad meal, or is it in eating good and healthy, nourishing meals? There's some value in pointing out what's bad about certain foods, but you can't eat them, and if you don't eat anything, you won't grow. You'll wither away. We need to be nourished so as to grow by eating good and healthy meals, not just pointing out the bad ones. So in contrast, a true teacher, in contrast to a false teacher, Paul speaks of in Titus chapter 1, A true teacher holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught by him, as taught to him, excuse me. That true teacher is able to instruct in sound doctrine, and he's able to rebuke those who contradict it. He knows the truth as he's received it from the Lord, and he's able to withstand those who contradict it. I saw an article recently in which uh, someone years ago interviewed Cornelius Van Til, who taught apologetics at Westminster Seminary for over 40 years, they asked him, why did he choose to study philosophy at Princeton University? And his immediate response was, why to protect Christ's little ones? It was something he had a, something of a knack for. He was good at it. But he wanted to spend his time looking at idealism and all the perversions of Christian orthodoxy so as to protect the church. He read Karl Barth. He read all the modern theologians and was able to correct them, and so protect the church from their, from their false teaching. That is a special calling. Not everyone is cut out for it. So special people raised up by the Lord to serve his church are able to do it, though. In his commentary on Second Peter, Alexander Nisbet says that the church will continue to be troubled by false teachers so that the Lord may have a proof of his people's love for him by their constant adherence to his opposed truth. This is so that he may make his truth the more clear and lovely to his people, that he may justly punish with strong delusion those who receive not the truth in love. So the presence of false teachers in, within the church, among God's people, is not for a lack of God's love to his people, but it is for our benefit in this way. Secondly, we see what false teachers do. There in verse 1, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. That is their basic job description. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. That is to say, they do it secretly in the sense that they smuggle it in. There's a surreptitious element there, perhaps creeping in undercover. Most likely, there is an evil intent here. They know what they're doing. They know that it's wrong. That's why they're not overt about it. They do it secretly. They want to smuggle it in. There's evil intent, we we see clearly, because what they sneak in is a destructive heresy. It's not that they don't know what they're doing. They want to bring it in and destroy the church from the inside. The destructive heresy is a reference to what their false teaching produces. False teaching leads to destruction. And again, as we said, the particular situation here in Peter's time is that there are those among God's people who deny the second coming and final judgment. There is no judgment to come in which you have to give account for your deeds so you can do whatever you please. 
the bitter irony that Peter will point out here is that those who deny the second coming, those who deny that there will be a final judgment in which we will give account for our deeds, those are the same people who have a swift destruction coming their way. There is, in fact, a second coming. There is, in fact, a judgment day to come. And those who deny that are receiving the worst punishment. That's just one permutation of false teaching seen in, in the context of Second Peter, but this applies to all false teaching, whatever, whatever mode it comes in. It's not just the, the denial of Christ's second coming. It's all manifestations of what is contrary to God's word. As he says here, false teaching leads to destruction. That is its end. Thirdly, we see what the root of false teaching is. Also in verse 1, these false teachers deny the master who bought them. Now later in this epistle, Peter will say that there are some difficult things in Paul's letters, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. But then you come to a verse like this one, and you think, well, there are difficult things in Peter too. Well, let's, not, uh, let's not exclude you from that description. This is a difficult phrase. Is this a reference to unlimited atonement? Denying the, the, that middle point in the, in the so-called tulip, limited atonement, where either Christ died to make salvation actual for the elect only, or did he make salvation possible for all men? This reference to the false teachers denying the master who bought them seems to pervert that second interpretation that salvation is merely made possible for all men by Christ's death. I want to argue that that is not what Peter is focusing on here. He's not primarily making reference to the extent or intent of Christ's atonement. The key at this point is to focus on the wicked denial of Christ on the part of the false teachers. The emphasis is on their denial of him not primarily a statement on the extent or intent of the atonement. Now, as I said, the, the only choices we have in, in, the, in dealing with the extent of the atonement is whether Christ died to make salvation actual for the elect only or possible for all men to be actualized by, by the faith of, of those who believe. Well, Scripture's testimony is clear that Christ died to make salvation actual for the elect only. Think of John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, not the sheep and the goats. And later in that same chapter, verse 28, I give them, the sheep, not the goats, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So in light of this teaching, balancing it with what Peter is saying here, what, what is actually being communicated? Well, again, the, the main point is that the false teachers deny Christ. The, the focus is on them. They deny him. They repudiate Christ. They, they want no association with him. The same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 10. Whoever denies me before men, I will de- deny before my Father. These false teachers, by their by their false teaching, by their immoral lives, are tantamount to denying Christ verbally. They actually want nothing to do with him. The reference to Christ here is as a master. and In view there is the, is the legal control of a master, the, the authority over subjects. 
like a slave owner over a slave. Christ is said here to have bought the false teachers. That word is used in 1 Corinthians 6 as a reference to the atonement for believers. There's no reason to think that's not what's being said here either. That is to say, he, he bought them, he acquired them as property, secured the rights to someone, like a slave owner acquiring a slave. But think about the, the imagery of a, of a slave owner to make sense of this passage. If Christ died for the sheep only to purchase them as his own property, can the sheep deny that, that ownership? Can a slave owner go, go to the trade, buy a slave, and that slave say, that, that, that's okay, I'm not interested? No, the slave is absolutely tied to what the slave owner wants to do. If he bought him, he belongs to him. But that's, that's obviously not the case with these false teachers here. They don't actually belong to Christ. They, they might be showing that they're not sheep at all by their false teaching and their immorality. Now, as we saw in John 10, the sheep belong to Christ forever. The slave cannot say to the slave owner that he is not interested in belonging to him. That call is effectual. So if Christ has bought you, you belong to him forever. You cannot lose your salvation. You can be sure that your salvation is actual because of his death and resurrection, not just made possible so as to be completed by you. Spurgeon gives the illustration of the the two theories of the atonement as either a narrow bridge going all the way across the chasm or a wide bridge going only part way across. So those who want to maintain that the atonement of the Lord Jesus is only for the elect, a small number, that bridge actually is narrow, but it goes all the way across. The, the connection between God and man is actually made in Christ's death and resurrection. The only alternative is that the, the bridge is wide, wide enough for all men, but it only goes partway across so that you get to the edge and you have to jump. And in the final analysis, it depends upon you. That is not the testimony of Scripture, though. Peter is saying that Christ's death and resurrection is actually sufficient to save all men, even the false, te- even the false teachers, should they repent and believe and so be saved. Christ's atonement is sufficient for them, even though he only died for the elect. The the false teachers deny this salvation. They deny the free offer of the gospel, and so they remain dead in their sins. And that's the key distinction to keep in mind here. The difference between the divine intent of the atonement, what God is doing in, in the atonement of Christ, actually saving the elect, not merely possibly making salvation available to all men, keeping that distinct from the universal, well-meant, free, and constant offer of the gospel, which is what Peter has in view here. If the false teachers would get rid of their false teaching, if they would repent of their immoral lifestyle and believe in the Lord Jesus, they would be saved. But they, de- they deny the master. The point here is the culpability of the false teachers, not primarily the intent of the atonement. And mysteriously, we have to keep in mind, we have to keep in tension that it is true both that Christ died and rose again only for the elect and that his atonement is sufficient to save even the false teachers should they repent and believe. Our concern should not be on who seems to be elect, who shows signs of that. 
Our, that, that's not for us to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29, those secret things are only for the Lord to know, but the revealed things are for us and, our, and for our children. Our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel far and wide, even to false teachers, hoping and praying that they will repent and believe. We should not be afraid to tell all people, all people, that the death and resurrection of Christ is sufficient atonement for their sins and will make them right with God. Only God knows who the elect are. Our job is to make the gospel known widely and freely. Again, the point is that the false teachers could be saved if they repented and believed, but they stubbornly refuse God's grace that is actually freely offered to them. And that is why they teach what is false. They have denied the Savior. They refuse his grace extended to them from the Lord Jesus, the only Redeemer of God's elect. Fourthly, we see the end of the false teachers. The rest of verse 1 and and the second half of verse 3. They are those who bring upon themselves swift destruction. The second half of verse 3. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. This harkens back to Paul's word in Philippians chapter 3, encouraging the Philippians to press on toward the goal, keep persevering so that you can attain the resurrection of the dead, although he reports that some have fallen away. Similar to what's going on there in, in, in the Philippian church, what he says there is true of the false teachers here as well. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. False teaching, of course, damages the church, but ultimately it leads to destruction for those who bring it. They bring it upon themselves. It is their own fault. As we saw earlier, they know what they're doing, most likely. If they're smuggling it in, secretly bringing in destructive heresies, if they know what they're doing, it's their own fault. Their condemnation is because of their own sin. There's no one else to blame. And that destruction, as, we see, as we've seen, is on its way. It is not asleep. It is coming soon. Contrary to what these particular false teachers are saying, just because judgment hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen at all. And the delay of judgment, just because we don't know when it will come, just because it may not come for many, many years, that delay of judgment should not be interpreted as a divine approval of their immoral behavior. Don't misinterpret God's providence. Verse verse 3, we see that the, the condemnation is not idle. It's not sleep, not asleep. It's not taking a nap. Turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 5 to see the an Old Testament context for this. Isaiah 5, start at verse 25. Referencing the, the soon coming of the, of the wrath of God against his enemies, against these false teachers. Verse 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, 
and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. Judgment is not asleep. It is awake. It is on its way. Just because you do not see it coming on its way does not mean it is not, in fact, on its way. It is on its way for the false teachers. The irony is that they deny that judgment is coming, and it is, in fact, coming soon, and will come horribly for them. Literally, their destruction is not dozing, It is in progress. Psalm 121 says, Behold, the Lord, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord does not slumber in his care for his people and also here in his destruction of his enemies. Fifthly, we see the the following of the false teachers. Verse 2, Many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow them. Literally, Many will obey their sensualities. They will obey their sensualities, plural. That is to say, they will follow in their licentious tracks. The immoral example these false teachers have set will have a following from, from those within the covenant community. And this, of course, has special reference to, to sexual sin, to an ab- abandonment to fulfill any desire of the sinful flesh. Again, because of a denial of the second coming. Christ is not returning. If there was going to be a judgment, it would already be here, so you can live however you please. It's similar to the situation in the church at Corinth that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians. There is a, there is a degradation of the physical, probably a, a baptizing of, of Greek philosophy, where it is the soul that is most important about a person, and the body is evil, so that you can either beat yourself and be monastic, or you can use your body for any sexual desires you have. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, a man has his stepmother. That's one manifestation of denigrating the physical. It's important here to see the, the connection of the, the connection Peter is making between your doctrine and your ethic. Peter's not dealing with a merely theological problem. This is a character problem. What does he point out here in verse 2? The fact that people within God's covenant will follow the sensuality of the false teachers. Yes, he's concerned that they believe what is wrong. He's also concerned that their character will manifest in this immorality. That is because your character and your theology are connected. They reveal each other. Of course, if you believe there's no second coming, there's no judgment to give account at, you can, you can of course live however you want. But if you believe that Christ will return, and it will be all good news to see his face on that day and be changed into his likeness 
you want to be pleasing to him in the meantime, in his power. If your character is off, your theology will be off too. If your theology is off, then your character will be as well. Cornelius Van Til illustrates this, saying that there is, if there is an element of non-Christian thinking at one point, it is sure to reappear elsewhere. A suit of clothes usually shows signs of wear at several places simultaneously. So the issue here is believing something that is wrong regarding the second coming, but it manifests in immoral living. And if you see the immoral living first, it probably traces back to false beliefs about the second coming. That's because we cannot compartmentalize our lives. We may be able to have our theology in order, have an external subscription to our, our standards, have orthodoxy all in, all in order, but our, our immorality will undo us. Probably what's going on here is a, is a misuse of Christian liberty. Many hear of Christian liberty as a, as a pretense to do whatever they want. It's not just a denial of the second coming. People can affirm that Christ will return at the last day, but they still misuse Christian liberty. Think of the way that Paul argues transitioning from Romans 5 to, to chapter 6. Romans 5, he's maintaining that through one man, Adam, sin and death came, and, and, and death to all in him, but in Christ came righteousness and life. And where sin increased in Adam, grace abounded all the more in the Lord Jesus. And so he anticipates the charge there, going into chapter 6. Hey, if sin abounded here in Adam, and grace abounds all the more in Jesus, that means we can sin that grace may abound, right? Paul says, may it never be. Because if you are in Christ, you have been released from the bondage of sin. You've had that definitive breach from its power. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. There's a confusion of redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Christ did not keep the law so that you wouldn't have to. He kept the law in your place and bore the curse of the law on the cross so that by his Spirit you could joyfully keep the law to his glory. The confusion of redemption accomplished and applied is manifest here. Sixthly and finally, we see that what the damage of the false teachers is, how it manifests. Second half of verse 2, Because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. The reputation of the Christian faith is in fact damaged because of the immorality of God's people. Christ will build his church. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Nothing can undo that. But we are able to quench the spirit. And our, our reputation as immoral will do damage to the witness of the gospel in this world. If we merely confess the truth, have an external association with it, but live no differently from the world, then we have done damage to the reputation of the kingdom. That is to say that morality is not a dispensable add-on to biblical religion, nice to have but not necessary. It is to say that it is equally necessary as a love for the truth because immorality in the church actually damages the witness of God's people to the gospel. Herman Ritterboss emphasizes that there are two necessary, indispensable aspects of faith. 
Faith in its receptivity and faith in its activity. You must have both. Faith in its receptivity believes God's promises. And faith in its activity obeys God's will. You cannot have one without the other. We must have both. We see in verse 3 that the false teachers stand to make a financial profit out of those they have deceived. They want to exploit God's people with false words. That is to say, they deceive them, and then they cheat them. God's people are duped, and then they are bled dry. These false teachers sell a false gospel for a price. They don't actually care about God's people. They care about how much they can get out of God's people. They're not like the the good shepherd who lays down his life and cares for the sheep. They're not like his under-shepherds who would do the same, who want to care for them and, and open up God's word to them who are willing to say hard things to them, even if they don't like it. They'll tell you whatever you want to hear, and they'll do it for a price. And swift destruction is coming their way. They make things up, and they earn for it. So in conclusion, the first thing we should see and take away from this passage is that we, first of all, need to be firmly rooted in the truth. That is what will keep us from being duped by false teachers. As Paul says to Timothy, we must train ourselves for godliness. We must do the hard work of training ourselves, which will, in fact, pay off in us not being deceived by the false teachers. Secondly, we need to know how to identify them, which we already covered. They have certain characteristics. They say things that don't come true. They do things only for gain. They have immoral lives. Look at character. Look at doctrine together. Is there an orthodox confession but an immoral lifestyle in in some form? Or is there a moral lifestyle and heterodoxy or heresy? Both must be in place. Look to see if, if they match up or if there is inconsistency. An orthodox confession will necessarily be accompanied by a godly life. And a godly life will necessarily be accompanied by a love for the truth. They evidence each other. Both must be present. So to this end, especially regarding the the, the one aspect of false teaching, denying Christ's return, enabling us to live however we please, to that end, and as as a help to enable us to withstand all kinds of false teaching, let me read to you a paragraph from John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, his, his book on ethics. He says... The New Testament believer is not without law to God, but under law to Christ. He delights in the law of God after the inward man, and he therefore reiterates the exclamation of the Old Testament saint, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And he is also not forgetful that he who was the incarnation and embodiment of virtue, he who is the supreme and perfect example said, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yes, thy law is within my heart. Christ indeed has set us free from the curse of the law. He kept the law perfectly in our our place, not so that we wouldn't have to keep it, but so that we could keep the law by the power of the Spirit and with joy for his glory. And God's people said, 